This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Economic growth. Thank you very much, everybody. Prime Minister, you're going to say sorry. Hello, thank God it's Friday. What a week it's been. But at least, oh God, what now and the weekend are here. No, they aren't. Your sense of time isn't on the blink. This is the first ever Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? I'm Andrew Harrison. For those who missed the news, Oh God, What Now? is going twice weekly with a second show at the beginning of the week, this one, to sate the bloodlust of the politicised masses. The weekly panel show from our companion podcast, The Bunker, is now this Tuesday, Oh God, What Now? with regulars from both shows mixing together to add to the political debate and despair. Now... Broadcasting from under a desk, let's meet today's panel. I'm joined in the studio by the iconist Ian Dunce. Hello. She's got a very genuine reason to be here. Marie LeConte is a freelance journalist and author. Hi, Marie. Hello. And our guest this week is a professor of politics at the University of Strathclyde and a regular on Election Night TV. Welcome to the show, Professor John Curtis. Hi, John. Good day to you. Thanks for joining us. This week on the podcast, Labour has been registering some hallucinogenically high poll leads in the past few weeks. So will there be any real need for tactical voting come the next election? Just how strong will Starmer's position be? And after 90 lost recordings of BBC Radio 4's Desert Island Discs were discovered in Suffolk last week, what Desert Island Discs would we like to hear? Well, firstly, let's get right into what really matters, the scarcely believable chaos in the Conservative government. They've laid some very good material on for our first Tuesday show. As we start recording at 5pm, Liz Truss was still Prime Minister, (laughs) but in a more neutered and powerless capacity than any Prime Minister since the age of absolute monarchy. Now, Chancellor Jeremy Hunt flown in to fix the government's economic policy in the manner of Red Adair swooping on a burning oil rig, has torn up what remained of Truss and Quarteng's plans and entirely sidelined the Prime Minister. Conservative MPs are briefing feverishly that she's got to go. So what happens now? Ian, rhetorical question. Have we ever seen anything like this before? I No, I don't think so. Have we ever imagined anything like this before? Yeah, I mean, certainly in some of my more exciting fantasies, I imagined exactly that things would go this badly for Conservative Prime Ministers, and now I'm seeing it. I mean, she is now, you know, she's she's in a very extensive stage of her journey into the desolate, vast landscape of fucked. Um, and I think at this point, you, ha- you have to sort of think on each given week, surely she can't make it to the end of the week. Yeah, well, or the end of the day. She'll probably make it to the end of today now. But if you'd asked me that half an hour ago, I would have said, no, she's not going to make it to the end of the day. So it's a changing landscape. I mean, looking at exactly what happened today, Jeremy Hunt went select all delete. Um, <laughs> the much vaunted energy price guarantee is pretty much the only the, the thing that she kept returning to her touchstone is now going to be limited to a review after six months, not two years. There's not really anything left of that. Firstly, on that, the, the, the energy price guarantee, is, is this a meaningful thing anymore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's still going to help people through the winter. Okay, Mm -hmm. so I mean, we'll see what happens in the spring. And it gives the government a little bit sort of puts it in a slightly more nimble footing than the sort of bludgeoning homolithic approach that it had taken in the first place. So, no, I mean, that that all sounds right. And she's got the national insurance cuts. But apart from that, you have looked at a complete full spectrum U-turn on what we had earlier. What's the point of her now? That's a very (laughs) difficult question to answer. (laughs) I mean, you, you, you have to try and seek for something. I suppose the way she could try and repair it would be this. It'd be like the problem is methodological. 
right? You know, it's not that the values have changed. It's that we spook them. We get we went too quickly. If we can just put it on a stable footing, we can we can do this, you know, in a year or something. That would be the best possible case scenario you could make for it. And I don't think very many people would find that convincing. Jeremy Hunt has been keeping a very, very, very low profile through the last two administrations. Best mm. known for picking a fight with junior doctors when a health secretary. Not really a finance guy. Is he really the safe pair of hands that Truss is portraying him as, or is he just a different pair of hands? Well, it's a question of, it's relative, isn't it? I mean, objectively, is he a particularly impressive politician? No, he's very average. And if our society made any sense, he would make it probably to the position of a junior minister. I think that should be the top level of what you would expect from him. That is not where we are right now. And compared to the kind of things we've been seeing over the last six months, and particularly the last month, he is an absolute fucking towering giant next to Mm. his colleagues. The moves that he's made have been the right ones, and they've been made for a very simple reason, which is you basically think, if we go through one more day of the markets going into chaos as a basis of what we're doing, then the damage is so severe that everything completely collapses. So on that basis, he said what needs to be said. It doesn't help that his eye, he looks constantly startled. I mean, he constantly looks like he's been woken in the middle of the night by a loud sound in, you know, in the downstairs bedroom. That is a bit of an issue for him. But then, to be fair... You know, Keir Starmer has the same kind of look in his eyes most of the time. So maybe we'll just get to the point where they can face each other across the dispatch chamber, being constantly surprised by each other's presence. As we're now in the era of the prime chancellor rather than the prime minister, (laughs) uh, obviously everything that was laid out today was difficult decisions ahead, difficult decisions ahead. What are you expecting? Well, we've got a pretty clear idea now. They're going to row back furiously. There will be spending cuts. There will be tax rises or tax cuts that weren't going to happen that are now going to happen. He's talked about this sort of set of advisors that we're putting in. So we know that in terms of the methodology, it's not just like, oh, the OBR and Treasury sort of, you know, permanent secretaries as serious figures are back. It's that we are going to absolutely commit to the idea that we're checking each other's homework. Um, And there's a reason that we check the homework, which is that that's part of what you say to the markets to be like, we are not clowns here. Mm -hmm. You know, this stuff is getting checked by people who are at least vaguely independent of us. So we've got a pretty clear idea of the direction. We've got a pretty clear idea of the manner in which he's going to approach the task. And the next thing that we're going to find out is exactly what it is that's going to get cut. John Curtis, I've been trying to think of historic precedents for a completely neutered prime minister who's effectively under the control of one of their supposed subordinates. I can't think of anything at all. Are there any in, in, in your experience? Well, if you're trying to think of an analogy for what's happened in the last three weeks, to be, well, to be honest, it's, it's a combination of two things. Uh, one is the Black Wednesday Uh, of September 1992, almost exactly 30 years ago, which is the last time a Conservative administration got into trouble with the markets. Um, In what was the relatively early stages of a new administration, i.e. the one that was elected uh, under John Major in 1992, albeit, of course, it wasn't a a new party in government. It's a combination of that together with the IMF crisis, of 1976, which occurred early in Jim Callaghan's tenure. Now, Jim Callaghan, of course, was also uh, only became prime minister in the middle of a parliament and about six months into becoming prime minister, so slightly longer than his trust, found himself having to preside over public expenditure cuts and calling on a loan facility from the International Monetary Fund in order to deal with a fiscal uh, crisis uh, that was then facing uh, that Labour government. 
it's therefore, I think, the interesting way to look at this is to look to see to what extent what is what what are the lessons of those fiscal crises, and to what extent this fiscal crisis has played out politically uh, in the way that previous ones have done. Now, point one is that the swing against the government in the wake of Black Wednesday in September 1992 was of the order of seven and a half points uh, within a month or so of Black Wednesday. Um, As of last weekend, the swing against this government uh, to Labour was eight and a half points uh, since the fiscal event, though we've had two polls out today, both of them at least in part part or in whole uh, conduct over the weekend, that suggest that that swing has now got even bigger and we may now be approaching a 10% swing. So fiscal crises don't do government, getting into trouble with the markets don't do governments any good. History has taught that lesson and that lesson is being taught to this government again. Second thing that happened, certainly in the wake of Black Wednesday, is that the Conservatives' reputation for economic competence was badly reversed. Um, We've had a number of polls uh, showing uh, the uh, Labour Party ahead of the Conservatives now on economic competence, often by about 40% to 20%. But again, today we've had the, the company with the longest re- set of readings on this subject, Ipsos Mori, uh, who indeed, you can look at their time series and show that after Black Wednesday in 1992, Labour went into the head on economic competence. They only ever subsequently went down in the wake of another crisis, the financial crisis of 2008, uh, which saw the Conservatives go back into lead. Well, now, for the first time since then, Labour are back in the lead. So again, history has repeated itself. And the third thing that happened in the wake of 1992, but not so much in the wake of 1976, and here I think there's some interesting things to explore, is that the Prime Minister became a lot less popular. So John Major moved from being somebody whose net satisfaction scores were around zero, stroke slightly positive, to getting scores of around minus 50. Well, that's where Liz Truss fell to at by the back end of last week. And indeed, now in the first poll uh, of her ratings since then, it's now down to minus 61, which puts her in an even worse position than John Major was at in 1992. Now, actually, in Jim Callaghan's case, definitely he took a knock but Jim Callahan was kind of somebody who people liked as a person. And one of Liz Truss's problems is that basically voters don't really like her as a person. Her likability scores are as bad as her um, as her competence scores. Um, and I think, therefore, she's not insulated in the way that Jim Callahan was. The other thing that's happening is that the briefing mania that's going on and the reassembling of factions that we thought had, had, had disappeared in the Tory party has been quite astonishing. My old politics tutors used to say to me, there's only one rule, and it's that uh, divided parties never win elections. Yeah. Were they right? Yeah, sure. And again, this, that, this is the problem that faces the Conservative Party now. So, you know, one of the reasons why the uh, 1992 to 97 government never recovered politically is that it thereafter it engaged in a civil war on the issue that gave them uh, grief in Black Wednesday, which was Europe. 
broadly speaking. It was uh, the pound was ejected out of the then European exchange rate mechanism, which was a step that had been taken with a view uh, towards the UK perhaps being part of the monetary union. Uh, but the pound went in at a relatively high value, and the markets eventually decided that value was too high and forced the pound out. And you know, thereafter lies a long tail. Equally now, there is clearly a risk, you know, irrespective of what happens to Liz Truss, is that the Conservative Party is going to be divided over the question of its economic direction. Um, we've seen a lot of uh, rallying behind the party and behind the Prime Minister today inside the House of Commons by at least those uh, Tory MPs who put their head above the parapet. Intriguingly, with the one exception of Peter Bone, who was about the last person standing defending Boris Johnson. But anyway... So far, the Tory party has not you know, demonstrated uh, much in the way of its divisions inside the House of Commons. But those divisions are clearly there. And the question is whether or not this is going to get played out. If it does get played out, uh, again, it will make it very, very difficult for the Conservatives to recover. Marie, you went on holiday last week. Are you kicking yourself? Oh, absolutely not. I had a delightful time. <laughs> I actively left my phone in my Airbnb when I went to the beach. It was tremendous. So when you came back and picked up your phone, you're like, what the hell is going on? Well, so yes, but then, so I wonder if I was not to blame in some way, because the last time I went specifically on a long weekend by myself to Spain, uh, Michael Gove ended up stabbing Boris Johnson in the back. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so again, I'm not saying, you know, correlation causation here um, yeah. you know, and that one was definitely you know do you still remember being in Valencia sitting in my hotel room on my bed looking at my phone going what and mm. this time I was like no I am not doing this again I am in Spain I'm going to have a lovely time so when you landed and you've got yourself back into the swim very quickly what what sort of sense are you getting this afternoon of the way it's going for the Tories well so the first thing I saw actually when I got back to Luton was an old copy of Metro uh, from Friday that said Quasi Quarteng uh, is here to stay and is not going anywhere <laughs> which was very odd. Mm. So, I mean, the, the vibe, I, I don't even know how to put it into words. I think, so I, I've had quite a few Conservatives asking what I thought would happen, which is never really a good sign. I'm supposed to ask you, it doesn't that way. That is never good. Uh, but even more seriously, I've heard of at least one MP who, to my knowledge, has never uh, sent in a letter to Graham Brady, actually doing so for the first time ever, and I like, quite a long-serving MP mm. recently. And there's, yeah, no, I mean... It, there are no real worse conversations with sources at the moment are profoundly odd because what is there to say? Yeah, I mean, the iceberg has been hit very hard and we can't unhit the iceberg. No, exactly. And, and again, and I think, you know, there's also structural problems that I think go beyond Liz Truss and went beyond Boris Johnson as well. And remember that column I wrote um, in February this year, I think, where I said actually that, you know, Boris Johnson, if anything, was quite convenient as a bad leader because that meant the parliamentary party could kid itself that it could just get rid of Boris Johnson and then yeah. everything would be fine in the way that people keep a crap boyfriend around because their life is in crisis. Um, and I think a similar thing is happening with Liz Truss. Of, again, you know, she may go, she may not go, but who would replace her? Who can Who can be in charge of a parliamentary party like that? I'm just at a, a sort of human level, seeing the state of her since that press conference on Friday. I don't think I've ever seen a working politician look so broken as a human being. It was genuinely disturbing. I mean, I have no time for her politics, but I was looking at the state of her thinking, this is a human being who is utterly bewildered, has no idea what's going to happen to her or how she got here. Do you have any kind of like feeling for her just at a human level? So weirdly, I don't. So I did 
uh, with Theresa May. I mm. remember in the absolute sort of like horrible, you know, pits of the Brexit chaos years, I definitely felt really bad for her on a personal level because I thought, actually, this is not entirely, entirely your fault and you're generally trying to do something here. Whereas Liz Truss, so I think, uh, I think the reason why I didn't have any sympathy is like, A, she has wanted to be prime minister for a very long time. It's been very obvious to everyone that she's always wanted to be prime minister. But the second one, perhaps more importantly, is that she has been quite radical, uh, politically speaking, basically forever, at the very least since she entered the Commons. She's always known that she's kind of outside of the, the mainstream thought, um, mainstream conservative thought in Britain. How like, Had it never occurred to her at any point that she probably would have to convince people if she did get power that she would actually just, you know, have to explain her ideology, explain the way she wants to run the country that is, you know, very, very different from the last generation, if not more of, you know, of kind of the, the way the country's been run. So, no, I don't I don't really have any sympathy because, again, she should have seen all of that coming. This is all these are all mistakes of her own making. I mean, for everyone. Who could possibly replace her or want to replace her at this junction? Ian, who do you fancy, as it were? I mean, I don't, no one would be worse. <laughs> I, I don't know. I'm, I'm I mean, sure. I'm oh, that's sure. A, no, that's a great but question. Who would be worse? It's not the same as saying anyone would be better, though. There's an interesting little syllogism going on there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you could, almost anyone from the last leadership contest would be better than she is, mm. presentationally, even intellectually. I mean, I think Morden is an absolute black hole, you know, cognitively. But I think she'd be far more impressive than, than Liz Truss. It's, I do find it quite hard. Like, even if, if you were to be in some, you'd be like, OK, so, you know, Peter Bone or, or you know, someone else from, like the, from the, the wings of the Tory party that I find objectionable. I don't think that they would have messed things up as badly. As she has. She I does. genuinely struggle to think about it. I'm her. so sorry. It's just, I, I, I mean, this is actually a, a delightful update. So, you know, the Daily Star has that live stream of a lettuce to yeah. see if it'll last longer. Um, so they've hidden the lettuce under a desk. <laughs> <laughs> it's just getting cruel now. So I've just been sent the latest uh, approval figures by our producer, Jacob Archibald. Uh, British electoral politics. Which individual would make a better prime minister? This just came out at quarter past five. Keir Starmer, 60% plus 12. Liz Truss, 13% minus oh, 10. fucking Christ. That's just like, that's the Black Death polls better than that. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Ian, um, so Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwasang, they were at the culmination of a 50-year-long march for the kind of Tufton Street libertarian right. From Thatcherism through Euroscepticism to Brexit to this, you know, at last a true Tory budget, as the Mail said. They thought they'd won it, that kind of uh, libertarian sphere. And it blew up in their faces in like five minutes. Is that it then for the IEA, Taxpayers Alliance, Tufton Street universe? No, because, you know, I mean, look at the financial crash. I mean, that didn't kill off the stream of thought um, and mm. neither, you know, the failure of austerity. No, they hadn't been in charge when the financials crash happened. This is as clear as possible to these are our guys. These are our people that we want. They're in charge and it, they fuck it up on day one. So I put these guys in the same category as basically uh, as Corbyn guys talking about true nature of socialism. That's the way you always get with the laissez-faire guys. So it's like, oh, you just haven't fucking tried it properly. You know, you just <laughs> got to do it harder. And that goes all the way back. I and mean, you can go back 100 years and they talk in exactly the same way and they talk exactly the same way now. It is non-falsifiable, the ideology that they hold, and they're never going to go away for that. Uh, no, so I, I was going to basically say exactly that. But also, again, I think to come back really to my earlier point, what I find striking with both them and I think uh, with the kind of Corbyn lot as well, especially the ones more to the left, is that, that they would both probably agree that their plan will make the country allegedly a better place in 5, 10, you know, 15, 20 years, mm. even if it hurts in the first few years. And what I find really striking is that neither side 
is capable of actually articulating that in a meaningful mm. way. So I'm, I'm, I kind of agree. I think you know that they're not going anywhere, or maybe they'll go, you know, away for a bit, but then come back. But yeah, I don't quite. But surely, in, in, in kind of practical political terms, going away for a bit is going to be a very long time because presumably they'll most likely lose the next election. Then there'll be a huge debate within the Conservative Party about where the hell we go, where these guys no longer have the whip hand because they basically catapulted the Conservatives out of government on day one. Then they've almost got to go back. They've gone down a big snake on the whole snakes and ladders board. They're right back to having to make the case again for all this. And also they've lost all their guys within the Conservative Parliamentary Party and they've discredited their arguments amongst the Conservative uh, membership. Surely it's, it's a bit worse than, oh shit, we've lost an election. Give it another go, lad. Yeah, I mean, they're quite badly fucked. Also, do you remember the way that Labour used to say this stuff in like 2010? They'd be like, oh, it's fine. We just, you know, maybe a spell in opposition four years. We'll get mm. back in. It's a good election so, to lose. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. All of that shit. And then you're like, oh, well, yeah. Or on the other hand, you could be out of power for 12 years, when, in which time they'll dismantle the entirety of your political project. Um, can I do a quick note on this Brexit yeah. thing? Because I think something interesting is happening with, that, with Brexit. So the first one is you can almost feel over the last two weeks this sort of consensus forming that moulds what's happening here with Brexit in a quite a negative sense. Like it, you almost get the sense of living through the kind of real-time tick of a consensus against Brexit. But the funny part is this isn't strictly that closely connected to it. So politically... Trust was almost like a reversion away from the Brexit message. Like, you know, the Brexit message was basically, you know, as, as it was interpreted by May and then by Johnson, was sort of like working class Toryism, you know, these areas that have been forgotten, left behind by precisely the old neoliberals, people like Thatcher, you know, that's yeah. where that rot starts of these forgotten sort of towns. Um, so on that basis, politically, it's actually quite distinct. And yet the method was the same. Mm. You know, the method was basically fuck the experts. As long as we've got enough will, as long as we believe in it hard enough, we can do it. The thing is with Brexit was that the causal impact was so long, right? You can do this thing and then months later, years later, you'll get reduced investment and reduced productivity or you know stuff at the border. Mm. But it was so long afterwards. Whereas with this, that the causation was immediate. So it's it's kind of an odd place that we've ended up where it does feel Brexity and it's being interpreted as if it's wrapped up in that, even though politically it's kind of weirdly distinct. And methodologically, it's actually very similar. If I could say the word methodologically, I think I'd do much better. I think I like methodologically. I think it's quite a convincing rephrasing that I've done. Can I come in here if we're going to talk about Brexit a little bit? Yeah. Because, I mean, certainly those of a more remain disposition are arguing that one of the reasons why the government is in the different it is is because basically our growth rate is as low as it is. Um, so some, some those on the Remain side of the argument would argue that one of the reasons why um, uh, Liz Trust was having to try to pursue growth was because we haven't got much growth, and they would argue that one of the reasons for that is Brexit. Um, the second uh, connection I have with Brexit, of course, is that th- what this does is this this episode is done is to is to demonstrate the limitations of sovereignty in a globalized world. So the idea was that we would be able to take back control um, and be able to do more of what we wanted to do. But uh, that's fine unless you upset the international markets. And if there is one institution that is more powerful than the European Union, or at least has a greater veto power, um, then it is the financial <laughs> markets. But then, uh, of course, the interesting question about all of this is whether any of this will reopen uh, the debate politically about Brexit. It's pretty clear from the polling, and has been for some time, that there is probably now a majority for 
re-entering uh, uh, the European Union. But of course, what is true south of the border is that neither Labour nor the Liberal Democrats wish to revisit the issue. But there is one fallout of Brexit, uh, which has taken another significant step forward today. And I think we should talk about this. And that is the unveiling by the Scottish government of its economic plan for an independent Scotland. Left, right and centre of that is the SNP's opposition to Brexit. And they are now very much presenting independence as a way of getting Scotland back inside the, uh, the European Union, which they characterise as a much bigger single market than that of uh, the United Kingdom, uh, you know, re- restoring freedom of movement, getting back into the single market, and beginning to acknowledge some of the downsides, such as the fact that there would be a trade barrier uh, between Scotland and England. So although south of the border the, there isn't uh, organised political opposition to Brexit, north of the border there is, and of course north of the border there was never a majority for Brexit. And I think we should just bear in mind that, you know, while the excitement at Westminster and uh, today is clearly a fascination and we're still wondering what the fate of the Prime Minister should be, is it in the longer term, uh, you know, irrespective of whether or not there's a, a referendum in the short term, what we have seen today is the opening of a new debate in Scotland which is, uh, about its constitutional status, because now it's very clearly being framed as not simply being about inside or outside the United Kingdom, but rather being framed as inside the UK but outside the EU versus being inside the EU but outside the UK. Now, none of us know how that debate's going to go, but I think we should just be aware that north of the border at least, Brexit, which is the only reason why this issue is back on the agenda, is now going to be politically debated uh, and pursued, and we wait to see what the outcome is is going to be. But that is also clearly another very important political development that's happened today. It is a lot easier to frame, I think, a referendum right now by saying, Jesus Christ, look at the state of this government. We do not want to be stuck to those people. If Labour is polling that high, it is quite likely they will regain some seats in Scotland, maybe, you know, by no means all all of the ones they used to have, but at least some of them. And it will be, I think, the political argument for saying, you know, we, we, we want to... So we want to escape from, you know, kind of whatever the hell is going on in England will not be as strong if there is a Labour government, I think. Before we move on, a bit of an announcement on the live front. Origin Story, Ian and Dorian's smash hit Apple podcast number one, is going to do its first ever live event in London on Wednesday, the 2nd of November at the 21 Soho Club near Tottenham Court Road Tube. Tickets are on sale now. It's a great little venue. We did a brilliant Doomsday Watch event there a couple of weeks ago, and it was great fun. Ian, what's uh, what's happening on the night? Right, yeah, so we're going to talk about fascism. It's going to be a great time. You can bring party <laughs> outfits, you know, tequila. There'll be sort of singing and everything. We're just going to sort of dig deep into that thing. I don't know whether... Well, I mean, so basically, you know, the idea is that we're sort of... Dorian and I do these blocking sort of sessions and we've done our research where we try to work out what our argument is and hmm. the way we do it. So basically, the idea of this is we're just going to do that publicly. The fascism episode will come out later. It won't be much like what we're going mm-hmm. to get that night. But it's going to be our way of just trying to work out where we're going with it, what the story is, and hopefully, you know... I mean, hopefully it'd be quite funny. It's always quite funny to watch Dorian drink whiskey, and I think he's going to drink three to four times as much whiskey <laughs> on the basis of the subject matter, but we'll see. So that's Origin Story Live, the Season 2 launch event, because Season 2 is coming soon, Wednesday 2nd of November at 21 Soho. 
Origin Story Patreon people get a discount, of course. And links to the tickets are in the show notes for this show, so you can just click and uh, get them right there or go to 21-soho.com. And uh, your show is under comedy for some reason. So, hey, fascism, great <laughs> laughs. There yeah. we are. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So 19%, 21%, 28%, Labour poll leads over the past few weeks have sounded like somebody auctioning a Van Gogh without soup on it. Do I hear 50% yet? These are levels not seen since the mid-1990s and they herald the sort of electoral results that we're not so much a landslide as an extinction event. An opinion poll using NPR, multi-level regression and post-stratification, I still don't know what it is, put Labour on 411 seats and the Conservatives on 137, their worst figure in history, and that would entail 10 cabinet ministers, including Jeremy Hunt, Jacob Rees-Mogg and Theresa Coffey, losing their seats. So would Boris Johnson. So is it time for us all to dust off the DREAM CD or are there more behind the numbers that we should be wary of? Um, John, in terms of, you know, the, the trajectory of polling, we talked a little bit about this. How close are we to what you might term a historic turning point? Are the figures on that scale? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, the, the, the last three weeks have fundamentally changed the political landscape. Um, we are now uh, seeing the Labour Party with polling leads of the kind that we last saw in uh, the 1992 to 1997 Parliament, and of course, then the early years of New Labour. Um, I mean, there are still some limitations. I mean, Sir Keir Starmer is nothing like as popular as Tony Blair was. Um, and I think there are still question marks about the extent to which the public um, are enthused by the Labour Party as opposed to regarding it as a safe home. But I think it is remarkable how the Labour Party have been able to profit uh, almost uh, entirely. I mean, Liberal Democrats have not demonstrated any improvement in their position in the polls. And given what's happened the last three weeks, given the lessons of history, uh, the Labour Party is clearly at the moment the look like the party that's most likely to win the general election and for the first time in this parliament looks as though they've got a pretty good chance of being able to get an an overall majority and yes it's the, and if that indeed is what happens then we will say that the 23rd of September uh, 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 2022 was the moment that did it the self-inflicted wound of uh, a series of unfunded tax cuts, unfunded tax cuts that got this government into fiscal and financial trouble. I mean, we've been seeing projections on kind of insane magnitudes. The idea that the Conservatives could be—I mean, I think YouGov had a poll that projected the Conservatives would be on three seats in Parliament. Yeah, it depends. I mean, look, I mean, it, it becomes quite difficult to do this. I mean, look, you know, once at the moment, you know, the the Conservatives are on average what? It's something like down by 21, 22, 23 points. And at this point, it becomes quite difficult to do seat projections because arithmetically, it's bound to be the case that the Conservatives are not going to lose 21, 22, 23 points everywhere. They are going to, because there are some constituencies where they don't have that much of the vote to lose. That therefore means they are losing votes more elsewhere. 
uh, and almost undoubtedly. I mean, what happened to them in 1997 is that very clearly their vote went down more in seats where they were defending most. And once you get to this kind of scale of loss, it will to appear in the ballot boxes. That's what's probably going to happen, which is why, therefore, you start to get high numbers. I mean, the real message behind the, the, the MRP poll you quoted is that as compared with the vote numbers that that poll had, which were actually rather good by recent polls, it was only a 15-point Labour lead, uh, the seat projection was still looking uh, uh, much higher to what you would expect than if simply the, the parties with votes were going up and down more or less the same everywhere. Um, and, you know, the, the, the 170, 180 majority is, however, pretty much still what you would expect uh, given the more recent, uh, more recent polls. So point one is the Tories probably will end up in these circumstances, losing more votes in places where they are better off, which means they end up losing more seats than on a simply uniform projection. The second thing, which, you know, I've not had time to get into the details of this poll, but is the other, certainly what happened in 1997, and there was evidence happening in the local elections earlier this year, is that voters are so disenchanted with the Conservatives that they start voting for whichever party is better able to defeat the, the Conservatives locally, i.e. we'll get a degree of tactical voting, um, and that, that then may just compound the Conservatives' problems. But, you know, the truth is, this is all fine detail. If you are looking at opinion polls with 20-point, 20 25-point Labour leads, you don't need to engage in complicated statistical um, um, uh, analysis to know that means a Labour majority of a very considerable size indeed. Marie, what kind of vibes are you picking up from Labour at the moment as you uh, rattle around tea rooms chatting to uh, people? Are there, is, it, is it a do not fuck this up moment? <laughs> um, it kind of is, and I would say that it's not quite so... You know, I feel like you know, when Conservatives have been very high up in the polls, they kind of usually end up having that slight sort of like manic glee to them, uh, which I have not really experienced from Labour. There's more of a sort of like quiet, slightly stressed, like, oh, God, you know, we may actually be doing this. I can't remember if I mentioned this on the podcast or not, but during Labour conference when the, I think, 17-point uh, lead came out, which now, as a side note, is that like 17 po- only 17 <laughs> yeah. points? Like, Jesus, that's embarrassing. Um I, I happened to just be talking some uh, shadow cabinet uh, ministers and it was really interesting because it was just a slight silence and a, oh God, we're, we're actually, we're actually going to do this. We're, we're actually doing this, mm. uh, which, you know, what one might argue is probably better than just kind of singing champion of the world and putting a flare up your ass. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that, that, I suppose they are pretty clear that their first term, even more so in the, after the events of the past couple of weeks, their first term is going to be all repairs. So in a way as well, that's why I have some sympathy for, because, you know, that there's been a level of uh, criticism saying, actually, you know, they're, they're not being radical enough, not, not being bold enough. And it's like, well, yes and no, because actually, as, as you pointed out, I think a lot of what will happen, A, I think their hands will be tied uh, quite heavily by, you know, by the state of the economy, by the state of the country, but also a lot of what they will have to do will be the sort of quite basic, unsexy stuff of bringing the country back into a vague fighting shape. Yeah, but I think what I think what we will now see, however, is the Labour Party being put under much greater pressure to actually begin to indicate what it would do in office. I mean, this has been a, a spell of Labour opposition where it's been a question of saying very little about what the party proposed to do next. I mean, there was a little bit you know, more came out 
um, at the last, at the last Labour, Labour conference. But again, much of it is already in the dustbin. Uh, let's remember the Labour Party has not exactly been intellectually entirely clear on this fiscal crisis either. It backed both the uh, both the national insurance cut. Indeed, it has, it's always opposed. It's always opposed the national insurance uh, increase. Um, I, but it also backed the income tax reduction. It also managed to spend straight away the forty. The, the fact that he wanted to keep the 45p rate. He said he was going to spend that straight away. Now, uh, all of that is clearly for the birds. And, you know, they, a Labour spokesman has desperately been spending the last two weeks trying to avoid admitting that they were also in favour of the income tax cut that uh, Jeremy Hunt has now reversed. Uh, and I think, you know, that is a warning that the party is now... I mean, I think the truth is the party has shown an inclination uh, so far uh, to take uh, stances that it thinks it's in its uh, electoral interest. It's now going to have to begin to think about taking stances uh, that might actually... Uh, demonstrate that it's got a credible plan for government because I think you can expect journalists now to uh, interrogate and investigate what it says much more. And it's going, given we're also getting towards the end of this parliament, saying, oh, we can't tell you until the election is called, is going to increasingly not be an acceptable response. Ian, it is unusual that, that you should get these kind of stratospheric leads when even a massive fanboy like me can't really say this is exactly what Starmer stands for in terms of three or four you know, policy pledges. I want my little card like Tony gave me. That's what I want, something that's simple and makes sense. When you look at it, do you think, yes, there's a whole load of work to do here? Yeah, there is. There's a massive amount of work for them to do. I mean, and they do have some policy now. I mean, I thought the policy on sort of on on green energy and all of that was was really good at the conference. And it it seemed just about viable. I mean, how much of that stuff you might have to sacrifice now that we're in a very, very different world increasingly day by day is another matter. So I think it's there. I, I kind of think as a party, they're haunted by those memories of, of sort of, you know, the Kinnock years and all of that, where they were high Labour leads, you know, year after year, and they grew terrified of ever losing that lead. And then in the end, it didn't make any fucking difference and, and mm. you still lose. So I I wonder how much there's a historic memory there. I can't, yeah, I can't tell. I'm, I, like Marie, I'm quite enthused by the fact that they don't seem overexcited by it and are awed by the responsibility because that's kind of the act, the kind of attitude that you want from these guys. Yeah. Uh, I just want to talk about the Lib Dems for a, little, for, for a minute. Um, in wow, the, nobody's done that in No, years. but come on, like the world is changing. On, on the latest poll, actually, Sarah Davey would be the leader of the opposition. There you go. So, <laughs> who's laughing now? That yeah. actually makes me so intensely happy. I know it won't happen, but just getting yeah. to visualise that for a while. It's an interesting thought. Well, the uh, I hate all these kind of neologisms, neologisms about red wall and blue wall and green wall and purple wall. But the so-called blue wall seats, the shire seats, uh, that the Lib Dems are targeting in the next election, Redfield and Wilson has got Labour on 41%, Tories on 28 and Lib Dems on 24 So, I mean, would you not have expected that to be where the Lib Dems would search and still Labour are doing quite well there? Yeah, I still think, I mean, you know, if you're thinking about places like Winchester or whatever, like, you mm-hmm. know, it is the Lib Dems. It's just not going to happen, you know, with Labour. And so it's a lot of those sort of unique local circumstances, which are quite hard to pick up in that kind of, I, I mean, you know, I still think that that would lay out pretty much the way that you would expect. Yeah, but you need, you need to understand the character of that Redfield and Wilton poll. By blue wall, Redfield and Wilton do not mean simply conservative Liberal Democrat marginals. What that poll was a poll of graduate heavy, remain voting, conservative held marginal seats, but marginal vis-a-vis either in the south of England, but marginal vis-a-vis either Labour 
all the Liberal Democrats, right? So there are a lot, you know, including Ian Duncan's uh, Smith seat in Chingford. So you, don't, you shouldn't regard this as simply Liberal Democrat territory. And basically what that poll was saying was that the swing from Conservative to Labour in these so-called blue wall seats was pretty much the same as Redfield and Wilton were saying that the swing was across the country as a whole. In other words, there was nothing new going on. But in any event, one of the things that we know is that if voters are going to vote tactically, that's a decision that they only make much later down the track. So, A, I don't think this this poll was one that was it was designed that was necessarily going to tell you what was going to go on in what most people refer to as blue wall seats, i.e. conservative Democrat marginals. But B, in any case, even if you did design the poll in that way, it won't necessarily pick up the propensity for tactical voting because that's something that voters only think about much closer to election day. Just to wrap this up then, pretty much the only argument that's being advanced by the Conservatives against there being a general election soon is that they would lose it. There is no kind of moral defence. There's no we've got a mandate. There's no we've got a programme. It's just if we had one now, we would lose. Do we think we're going to get a general election this year or is it going to drag on like the major government did for a very long time? Oh, definitely not 2022. hmm, 2023, maybe... Um, I I would say I'm going to hedge my bet slightly here and say I don't really see a world in which there is a general election called in the next six months. Okay. After that, who knows? Like, I mean, do you know? Like, imagine if we could time travel to six months ago and you know all give a guess as to how things would be going in early October, in mid October. Um, yes, so, so I, I refuse to go any further. Than I six did months. love that cartoon that was flying around. A sort of witch mm. uh, telling the fortune for Liz Truss's parents, saying. Well, the future is that uh, Liz will become foreign secretary and prime minister. She will pay a a part in the Labour Party's biggest ever election victory (laughs) and she'll destroy the Tory party. And the mum and dad like, yay! This is by a friend of mine called John Rogan. Very, very funny indeed. So, Marie's saying six months. Ian, when do you think? No, 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 no think... definitely not in the next six months. And who knows? No, after not, that, not before six months. I mean, yes. yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, there's not going to be an, an election anytime soon. It doesn't matter how much we want it because it's not in their interest to do it. Mm. So the only scenario and I, this chimes with the six month thing is that you get a new Tory leader and their improvement in the polls is so severe, you know, that they might actually think, fuck it, I might as well go to the country right now. But that's quite a hard image to see. Mm. It's quite hard to think that that would actually happen. And then the other alternative, I suppose, is that, you know, the way the legislation that Boris Johnson passed means that Liz Truss can, if she wants, just hold a general election. She doesn't need to go to the, the Commons with it or anything like that. She might try to use it as a defensive mechanism against her own backbenchers like Boris Johnson did. But I just, I just don't see that kind of like sort of like Spartan mad bullshit, woman deal yeah, yeah tactic I just don't really see that in her so which it, you just can't see the fucking avenue but I, I would presume that, that we're not going to get a general election anytime soon John what do you think um, uh, no, I mean, there isn't going to be a general election until probably the autumn of 2024, unless, you know, I referred to my comments earlier, the Conservative Party seriously splits and is unable to agree on the successor to her. That, that, you know, and, you know, I have to remember that sometimes, um, uh, 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 the uh, decisions made by individuals end up, ends up with collective action that it's not necessarily, uh, rational. But that, that's the one risk that, uh, there's there for an early election, but assuming the Conservative Party uh, doesn't uh, find itself in that position, then sure, we're not going to have an election anytime soon. 
finally, last week, an audio collector in Lowestoft found more than 90 lost recordings of BBC Radio 4's Desert Island Discs. Amongst the surprising names featured in the long-lost files uh, were Bing Crosby, Dame Margot Fontaine, James Stewart, David Hockney and Dirk Bogart, all with their tracks and luxury items from a very different time. Margot Fontaine wanted the kind of mask that skin divers use. I can't quite picture that. And Bob Monkhouse, for his special item, wanted a large colour picture of Marilyn Monroe to remind me of what I'm supposed to forget. Marie, are you a Desert Island Discs listener? Uh, I this is a very weird admission to make uh, here, and I'm aware of it. I don't listen to the radio at um, all. At, I don't know what to do with my eyes. Oh, right. Is, <laughs> I, 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 I don't understand. If I'm doing something else, then I'm not listening. My brain tunes it out, and mm. if I'm just sitting there, then I get very restless. I'm not. I do have ADHD in my defence, so <laughs> okay. like there is a medical diagnosis here that that I can uh, hide behind. It's a fantastic so, wait, podcast. Do you, there. do you listen to podcasts? Nope. <laughs> no. Wow. I can't believe um, that you just came out and said mm, that. That's that's the I, yeah, I'm, I'm aware. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. Ian, the, I mean, the, the Desert Island disc format is you know, pretty much perfect in terms of discovering yes. a person's story. But it's an absolute minefield for politicians. You know, David Cameron chooses the Smiths and then, and then Johnny Marr pops up and says, you're not allowed to like the Smiths. Yes. Or uh, Ed Miliband choosing Robbie Williams' Angels and everybody kind of... Uh, <laughs> wow, I've I forgotten that. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, David Davis, Brexit bulldog. David Davis chose Get the Party Started by Pink, which is just really... <laughs> I have been thinking about this all day, by the way, since <laughs> reading it in the script, just generally has been rattling around my head yeah. all afternoon. Very, so, very well, strange. Specifically the David Davis Yes. Part. I mean, is this into the, are we into the world of, of, of politicians who don't really have a hinterland having to pretend to have one? Yeah, but doesn't it doesn't it switch right? Because so do you remember the two examples? It's not quite design and this, but one of them was Gordon Brown saying that he liked starting the day by listening to Arctic Monkeys. Yes, and you were just like, no, you Nobody fucking don't, you, Gordon. Yes. <laughs> please stop saying that. And then the second one was Keir Starmer going for uh, Three Lions, where, where I thought exactly the same thing. And then in the end, it sort of turned out as like, no, actually, he genuinely likes the song. Has for ages, he plays. For, and he also like, shows, oh. uh, he shows orange juice as well. He's like proper eighties indie guy. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fair enough. Yeah, yeah that's a good call. Hmm. Um, so. So you've got to be so you've got to hold back a little bit of skepticism. I heard the same thing about David Cameron and the Smiths mm. that there was a quiz somewhere and they did a, a sort of Smith quiz and actually his answers were properly legit and it was like oh you actually are a fucking Smiths fan like mm. this was not just some made up thing you did yeah who knew Morrissey would shift to the political right mm. exactly mm. maybe you, he picked up on the coded messaging that Morrissey was actually trying to get across do you uh, sort of fantasize about doing your own I mean, who in their right mind wouldn't fantasize mm. like, hasn't had some thoughts I fucking I'm looking at your eyes. I would rather die than have to sit and listen to ha- your your full length three hour judgment on what yours would be. It would be very very in depth. Yours so be, yeah, of course, of you'll course. be loads of tool and helmets and things like this. I was listening to Corner when I came here, so I've actually got very eclectic taste. Dear God, I actually made a list on the way here in case I was asked. Just putting Did it you? There. Yes. Oh, you got to do it now. Well, fine. I'll, I'll, very quick, I really very had to quick, push I you promise. into that. So, yes. Uh, a Larum by Johnny Flynn. Uh, Wolfgang Amadeus Phoenix by Phoenix. <laughs> it's a great album. <laughs> the Living Road by Lassa de Sella. Good, Bad, Not Evil by The Black Lips. Greatest Hits by Britney Spears. The Hamilton soundtrack. And the Nuggets 1 and 2 compilation for some like 60s That's, garage. What's amazing about this is because you do not listen to radio, you don't know that that programme is based on songs. Is it songs? I'm not allowed to have whole albums. Yeah. Well... I'm we'll having albums. John, John Curtis, is it? Like, who's going to stop me yeah. on my island? Yeah. John Curtis, have you been asked to do Desert Island Discs? No. What's the disgrace? They, it's, I'm surprised that they uh, haven't had you on because you're a television uh, fixture and a, an election night highlight. 
Well, I'm perfectly happy not to do Desert Island Discs. <laughs> if uh, people who know me know that I'm not really into the celebrity stuff. If forced to, what would the, possibly be a couple of the songs you might choose? Oh, um, look, I'm a classical uh, classical uh, uh, musical buff. Um, so I, I would happily take back cello suites, um, Handel's um, uh, uh, Messiah or Aces and Galatea. Um, I'd probably take some Philip Glass minimalism. Uh, and uh, so that, 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 you know, and I, and, you know, would, would, would certainly need to take some Mozart and some Beethoven with me. So you'll be a, uh, a lot more relaxed on the desert island than the David Davis rattling around to get the party started. <laughs> so just to close this off, then, who would be, who would be our dream desert island disc guest? Who would you want to hear from history, even? Oh, fuck. Wait, but that's, oh, that's very hard to answer. Marie, so got... I, I thought about this, and I mean, so my unironic one would be Nick Cave, because I just love Nick, Nick Cave. Mm-hmm. But I think the funny ones, I, I, I thought it'd have to be living. Emmanuel Macron, just because I have no idea what he'd come up with, just mm. not the faintest clue what he would pick for anything. Load of Johnny Halliday. Oh, God. <laughs> John, who's uh, Desert Island Disc, would you like to hear? I'd like to hear Nicola Sturgeon because that's one politician we have these days who does have a hinterland. She's uh, an avid reader of books. She's a regular chair at the um, Edinburgh Book Festival. Um, and it'd be, so we know a lot about her tastes in books. It'd be nice to hear a little bit about her taste in music. That's probably something that we, will happen at some point as well, I should imagine. Yeah, but maybe until only after she's retired. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Ian, who are you going for? I'll go with Paul Oster, the novelist. Oh, right, yeah. I'm going to guess he would have pretty interesting taste in music mm. and he'd be quite good at describing it. Because the thing that you're going for with that is you don't really want them to just play songs you like. You mm. want them to actually have like quite, a, like be able to structure songs into like an affecting story of a lifetime that mm. tells you something about someone. So novelists would probably be unusually good at that. Yeah. I imagine he would be the best one. He would just do eight Lou Reed B-sides, wouldn't he? Very, very difficult. I'm, I'm hard thinking there'd year. be quite a lot of Lou Reed and probably quite a lot of freeform jazz. But, you know, you know. Okay. Well, for mine, all I'm saying, Tom Baker's never done it, as far as I can <laughs> see. You want a life story? There's a life story. <laughs> Before we go, it's time to bring back some of the magic of the old Bunker Panel Show because we're going to keep doing escape routes. If you're a listener to the Bunker Panel Show, at the end of every edition, we would ask the guests, what are the films, books, TV show, or miscellaneous, just one thing that they've been using to escape from the political maelstrom this week? Now, Marie, obviously you've been on holiday, so you've been away from the political maelstrom, but what have you been diverting yourself with? Well, so I had uh, ham on at every meal, which I feel like I should mention, including breakfast once, and also as a snack, some ham on flavoured crisps. Um, but no, I, I also read uh, The Man of the House by Stephen McCauley, which is a lovely novel from the 90s, which I found kind of randomly in an Oxfam books. Mm. Um, and just one of those incredibly charming, fun novels um, right. about I mean, sorts of everything and nothing at the same time, really. But like 300 pages, which I, yeah, did in like under three days. I just a really fun, light, charming novel. Very nice. Ian, how about you? Uh, my Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which I'm coming to very, very, very late. Mm. Uh, mostly because I thought that the fucking title, I was just like, well, that just sounds terrible, right? And it isn't terrible. It's actually unbelievably fucking brilliant. And so so it's very funny and very sad. And it has an opening happy song in the title sequence where the sun looks at her, the sun in the sky, and goes, she's all broken inside <laughs> as a dancing thing, which makes me laugh every fucking time. Um, but the most impressive thing is I just got to the end of the first season 
and it has more balls on it in terms of fucking with rom-com tropes mm-hmm. than anything I've seen for ages. So like she's got two guys who she could go with. And at no point does this show basically tell you you should want her to go with this guy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there's like a more attractive guy who's clearly not right for her, a less attractive guy who's like she's kind of settling but he's very witty. I and- disagree completely. Oh, oh my shit. god. Really? Oh my god, the main guy, I hate him. Like, I had to stop watching because <laughs> I hated him so I think much. He's quite nice. So yeah, we could have he looks so thick and like, he probably walks into walls <laughs> on a daily basis. We can continue anyway, this. Anyway, yes. We can continue this offline. Off topic, off topic. John Curtis, what's your diversion from the nightmare of the moment? Well, uh, my wife and I have an allotment um, in Glasgow um, and we pretty much try to get out there um, every Saturday, including in the less uh, hospitable time of the year. So um, we were there on Saturday, even though it was, you know, west of Scotland rain, uh, tidying up the allotment and doing a bit of harvesting. Um, So that's uh, my principal form of relaxation, just get away and uh, Dig or cut or hack or harvest or sow is a pretty good way of finding out something that's completely preoccupying and enabling you to uh, forget entirely about the rest of the world. That's probably the most complete escape route we've yet had. I mean, short of literally leaving the planet, it's hard to get further away from politics than that. So, yeah, top marks on that one. Well, mine is music again. Um, I went to see, on Saturday night, I went to see Suzanne Cherney at Earth in Hackney. And Suzanne Cherney in the early 70s was kind of like a synth protégé who had to make and build her own synthesizers. She was part of the this was, you know, slightly forgotten wave of female synth prodigies. And she's still going. She's in her late 70s now and she came to Hackney and she brought her gigantic, I have no idea what it was, it was just a mess of wires and plugs. <laughs> and she played an hour of burbling electronics, white noise, beautiful melodies, very, very cosmic. And it was just great. It was cleaning and cleansing to the mind. Nothing even remotely resembling a song in there, just pure <laughs> vibes and vibrations. And it was amazing. So Suzanne Chani, if you get a chance, go. She's like the kind of New York Delia Derbyshire and therefore very much my kind of thing. And that's the end of the first Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? Listeners, thanks for listening. We're going to see you on Friday for another edition of the podcast. Remember, if you want to support us in our work, you can always back us on Patreon. You'll get the podcast early and without adverts with amazing merchandise and a shout out on the show. Thank you to Marie LeConte. Thank you. Thank you to Ian Duns. Thank you very much. And thank you to special guest John Curtis. You're welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. Regular listeners will know that our Patreon backers get a shout on the show. So here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and the very first Tuesday thank you to Patreon people. Hello, and thanks from me to Emma Shale, Kevin Rose, Andy Regan, Tufty McTavish, Andy Ellis, Hedwig, Naomi Aitken, Philippa Sturt, Rosie and Claire Riley. Massive thanks from me to Mark Siegel, James Mercer, John Boot, John Nagel, Daniel Sackett, Nick Sexton, George Christian, David Patrick Lynch, Gavin Bennett and John Paul Lappin. And finally, all the best from me to Eugene Cooney, Helen, Caroline Prudemes, Rosie Dickinson, Gwendolyn Burks, Anushka Baxter, BG Davis, Chris Schedule and Joe McKinney. Thanks for listening and we'll see you on Friday. Oh God, what? Sorry, I was hiding under the desk. Oh God, what now? It's been a while since I said that. Was presented by Andrew Harrison with Ian Dunt and Marie LeConte. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Jana Sofronievich and me, Alex Reese. With assistant production from Katja Tomasiewicz. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Art direction by Mark Taylor. 
Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. <laughs>